1: All right. Well, everybody is in a very friendly chatty mood tonight. I hate to break that up. I don't know if that was the spot of sunshine. We got here our 15 minutes of sunshine, uh, but here we are and it is five o'clock. So I'm going to call this committee of the whole meeting of the Kalamazoo city commission to order here in our historic chambers and, uh, our meeting uh, will be proceeding here. Our business meeting at seven for Monday, April 4th, 2022. First order of business, clerk Borling. Please call the roll. Commissioner Decker. Present. Commissioner Hess. Present. Commissioner Hoffman. Present. Commissioner
2: Juarez. Present. Commissioner Prado. Vice Mayor Cooney. Present. Mayor Anderson.
1: Here. May we have a motion to excuse Commissioner Pradle?
0: So moved. Unless he's coming in right now. Don't need to
1: do it. There he is. Timely. He's here. (laughs) All right. All here and accounted for. Deputy City Manager Chamberlain, do we have any communications?
3: No, sir. We do not. Not tonight.
1: First, uh, then before we begin the. The uh, report and discussion part of our meeting is an opportunity for public comments Do we have any public comments at this time? And while we're listening to the phone is there anyone in the audience who would like to make any comments Outside of our agenda here before we start our meeting And evidently no Uh, No comments at this time. All right, no phoned in comments either. So we are down now to the work session portion. We've got a couple great uh, presentations for uh, the commission and the public this evening. And first up, uh, I will turn it over to Deputy City Manager Chamberlain to get us to work. All
2: right, thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Yeah, we are very pleased to have two presentations tonight on some uh, very important topics here for our community. Uh, Our first presentation tonight is from Kamal uh, Razvi with the YWCA, and we'll be talking about Cradle Kalamazoo. So uh, welcome to the meeting, and you're welcome to come on up. And uh, the floor is yours.
4: Razvi, and my pronouns are she, her. And I serve as the director of community health at the YWCA Kalamazoo for Cradle Kalamazoo, our county-wide infant mortality reduction program. Some of you may have heard about um, Cradle, especially in the midst of our public health crises. Um, And I'm here to provide some more details on our collective, um, in addition to some very intersecting and pressing needs, particularly around housing and reproductive health care and its linkage to infant health in our county. Um, So, before I uh, begin, it's very important for us to discuss our North Star for Cradle Kalamazoo. Why do we exist in the first place? Um, Our goal for Cradle Kalamazoo is to reduce our infant mortality rate to less than 3 per 1,000 live births by 2030. um, And to completely eliminate racial disparities between infant deaths uh, or between those infant mortality rates. So specifically, what is an infant mortality rate? Uh, Infant mortality is the death of an infant, a baby, before its first birthday. So I'm referring to all of the data in this presentation will be regarding live births. I'm not referring to um, pregnancy losses, miscarriages, stillborns. These are all live um, infant births uh, that are accounted for in an infant mortality rate. in Cradle, the goal is to reduce the infant mortality rate to less than three, but very importantly, or equally importantly, is to close, completely eliminate, eliminate the racial disparities. Some of you may have seen um, when we are talking about rate reductions for things like COVID or other health disparities, the rate might go down, but the disparity across racial lines or um, uh, insurance status or socioeconomic status, those seem to widen. So that's why we have a two-fold goal here why does it matter? Why does it matter to our community? Why does it matter to all of you? That's because, one, every child deserves to see their first birthday. But beyond that, infant mortality in the field of public health is known as what I like to call a litmus test for our community. It tells us how healthy we are as a community, or how ill we are, how sick we are as a community. So, if babies, which are usually seen as the most vulnerable members of society, if they aren't thriving, that points to many unmet needs in our community, unmet needs for pregnant and parenting people, and unmet needs for us as a community. So when I talk about infant mortality in Kalamazoo, what are we seeing? Um, if you look at the racial disparities in infant mortality graphic, the the picture of infant mortality is very bleak in Kalamazoo and has been for a very long time babies of color are three to four times more likely to die before their first birthday regardless of the income level or the education level of the birthing parent. So at this this graphic here essentially shows you with white families at the top ranging from um, income, lower income on the left and higher income on the right. It shows that White families in the lower income have reached a goal of um, five deaths per 1,000 live births, which if you're familiar with Healthy People 2020 or Healthy People 2030 goals, um, the goal was in 2020 to reach less than six per 1,000 live births. So our white families of lower income have reached that rate. We're all about it, incredibly excited about it. Um, Families, white families of higher income have an infant mortality rate of around three per 1,000 live births. Again, also having reached, <clears throat> excuse me, also having reached their healthy people 2020 goal. However, families of color are stuck in time when it comes down to infant mortality rates. The infant mortality rates that families of color are suffering are rates that white families have not seen since before the 60s. So, the black infant mortality rate um, of lower income households is about 15 per 1,000 live births. If you increase the income, we're still stuck at a staggering 13 um, infant deaths per 1,000 live births. So to put into perspective, I want you to imagine this, that a woman of color, let's say a black woman who is a lawyer, highly credentialed, um, stable income, her baby is still three to four times more likely to die in the first year when compared to a white woman who hasn't finished high school yet um, or is financially struggling. So that goes against everything we've ever been taught about income and education being protective factors. That's simply not the case here in Kalamazoo County alone. So we know that our goal is to reduce the overall infant mortality rate and to close the racial disparities. What public health research shows us is that 10 to 20% of our health outcomes are impacted by the clinical sector. The remaining is actually impacted by the social sector. So a lot of people think infant mortality, they think about the hospital systems right away, they think about the clinical offices, as we should. However, our focus should also go towards the social determinants of health, things that impact your other ways of being that carry a heavier impact um, on your health outcomes. So I'm talking things like discrimination and racism in our systems, in our structures, in our policies, in our practices. Um, Access to quality and affordable services. I'll discuss some of those in a moment. Livable wages. Are community members being able to afford um, basic needs and then moving from surviving to thriving? Do they have safe and secure housing? I'll share in a moment why that's so critical. And then the ability to live an authentic and affirmed life. So essentially, the social sector, that's all of us. That's us. So whoever said it takes a village to raise a child, I'm not sure who said it, but they were absolutely honest. In Cradle Kalamazoo, we have this collective impact where not only do we have representation from clinical providers, but we also have representation from other sectors, uh, social determinants of health. If research shows us that clinical sectors can impact health by 10 to 20% and the remaining is from social sectors, it only makes sense then for us to have other representatives Um, putting aside not just their common goals for their organizations, but working together to reduce the infant mortality rate and eliminate racial disparities. So you may be wondering now, Kamal, you've been telling me about the infant mortality crisis, so what exactly is the problem? What are these causes and what's being done about it? Simply put, um, black, brown, and poor babies in our county are dying at disproportionate rates. Some of the causes that you'll see on the aligning strategy with cause um, slide, we have um, a very, very robust fetal infant mortality review team. And if you're not involved with that or haven't heard much about it, Kalamazoo County's fetal infant mortality review is actually seen as a national model um, for other national femurs because of how robust we are. We review um, many, many fetal infant death cases. We do family interviews whenever possible, Um, and we have multi-sector representation. So in our fetal infant mortality review team, we don't just have clinical providers like pediatricians and OBGYNs. We also have social justice agencies represented, community members. We have home visitors, social workers, right? Um, CPS, in fact, as well. And what we do is we review all of these cases for beneath the iceberg. What was the actual cause of this infant death case? I'm talking beyond illness, Infection, unsafe sleep or related death, but what perpetuated that poor infant health outcome? What are some of those gaps that occurred step after step after step that built to this case of fetal demise? So, what we've learned in Cradle Kalamazoo while reviewing hundreds of fetal infant death cases is that it bubbles down to four causes, four heavy causes, but four causes nonetheless. Fragmented systems of care, number one. That is when left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, or as I like to say, left hand knowing that the right hand even exists. So community resources, not knowing what other, uh, how to link community members to those resources, clinics not knowing which community resources exist, right? An example of that that comes to mind is when a provider sees a case of a pregnant person with gestational diabetes and writes insulin, sends them on their way but doesn't realize that the person has no home to go to, let alone a refrigerator, to store the insulin, okay? So that's examples of fragmented systems of care. Stress resulting from poverty, racism and discrimination, lack of opportunity and access. The the sense of hypervigilance that it creates for women of color, the trauma that it creates for women of color, who's going to be hired? Will I be hired or will someone else be hired? Am I more likely to get fired? I have to balance three to four jobs to keep food on the table for my kids, yet if I miss an appointment, I'm suddenly looked at as if I am um, not putting my children first. Just an example of the hypervigilance. There's no coincidence here that women of color are less likely to carry to term and are more likely to have low birth weight babies. As a woman who has experienced infant loss, I'm speaking from experience here inaccessible and culturally incompetent health language. I'm referring here to not just using language that's understandable by everybody, but also that language that is keeping in mind the historical trauma that communities of color have faced and continue to face, and if we don't do anything about it, will continue to face. By this, I mean safe sleep education. What is our imagery looking like? What language are we using? Reproductive health. What kind of language are we using for communities of color who have had historical trauma for sterilization, rapes, and slavery? Is our education being presented in a way that is accounting for our historical trauma? Based off of that, Cradle Kalamazoo identified the strategic focus areas directly from these cases of infant loss. We created a perinatal home visitation network helping communities uh, navigate the community resources and the clinical space incorporating health equity into clinical um, practices, structures, and um, uh, policies. So we have established clinical equity teams in our four major health systems. But we also do deep equity work in other sectors, like housing, and I'll share that with you in a moment. We must address policy changes. Providing reproductive health and safe sleep education, we have um, strategic focus areas specifically around safe sleep and reproductive health, knowing that safe sleep deaths are 100% preventable. And reproductive health education, I'll share in a moment with you why that's incredibly important. And of course, a public policy and systems change component. So as you can see, infant mortality is a very complex crisis and one that requires an equally complex strategy. So some examples of what Cradle was able to accomplish to date is that we successfully shifted prenatal care. That's when a pregnant person attends or enters prenatal um, care initially. Women of color were entering, in our own community, women of color were entering prenatal care at around 19 weeks gestation. That's well into the second trimester, too late to identify multiple birth or gestation, high-risk pregnancies, all of that. We were able to, with our equity measures, shift that down to nine weeks, which was the um, gestational age that white women were coming in for prenatal visits. Equity measures work once they're done intentionally. We also shifted birth weights from people of color from preterm to term. We've seen a 20% increase in that in spite of COVID. We also launched a universal resource project. Um, which is essentially a one-stop shop for community members. If you need dozens of community resources, there's no reason for you to be ping-ponged across the county to reach your resources. We have one universal access form to coordinate across programs to get community members what they need. We also created a community voice panel. In case you're wondering, yes, we hear from the fetal infant mortality review, but how else do you get community members' feedback? We have a community voice panel where community residents are paid for their expertise to share feedback with us for things as simple as surveys, down to serving as mystery shoppers in organizations to help us assess for equity and influence systems change. That's all well and good, you may be thinking, but the community needs more. Let's explore some um, connections between infant mortality and housing and our repro health service access. Housing is, by many researchers, often referred to as a vaccine because of just how protective it can, um, the protective factors that it can provide um, pregnant and parenting families. So historical and contemporary housing discrimination directly impacts infant health. In these three main um, pathways, that's neighborhood impact, affordability and stability, and poor housing conditions. In the neighborhood um, impact side, we see under-resourced and unsafe housing. Um, Exposure to pollutants and increased violence, something that you may be hearing about here in city commission. Um, Poor nutrition and chronic stress. Imagine the impact that that has on a growing growing fetus and a pregnant person um, trying to sustain a healthy pregnancy. There's also the stress from excessive cost burden. Am I going to be able to afford my next rent increase, which is bumped up by $300 or more? Chronic instability, having to move frequently to whatever place you can afford the rent, regardless of what the housing looks like, and the risk of eviction and homelessness ever looming. Poor housing conditions also include the exposure to toxins, pests, and air quality. We have seen this directly intersect with our infant mortality cases. Um, Lack of heat, um, causing parents to bundle their babies, leading to suffocation, or uh, rodent and pest infestation, causing parents to sleep with their child on their chest, thinking they can protect them from rodents when, in fact, that put them at risk uh, for unsafe sleep-related death. As you can see here, housing conditions directly impact infant health outcomes. How so? These are some images directly from our community members, taken with permission, of course. Backed up sewage, black mold, right? Can you safely raise an infant here? Just something that I want you to to think about. Can you safely raise an infant here? Can you successfully sustain a pregnancy in environmental conditions like this? Or if you do have an infant um, seeking to develop those muscles and crawling, can they do so in this space? I think the answer here would be a unanimous no. So the health equity team in Cradle, Kalamazoo, um has been having lots of um, intentional conversation with housing sector leaders. Many of you have seen me in that in that um, uh, in that area when we are having conversations around housing. We have had some successes in those areas. We have had some housing organizations prioritizing pregnant and parenting people. we have some applying for grants to specifically um, support pregnant and parenting people. We have some who are specifically um, building in our uh, pregnant and parenting people to be included in the housing millage, that is a result of this, right? Collaboration with community organizations, bringing information to you, people who can make a change um, for us to collaborate collectively on next steps. So while there are some changes being made in the housing sector, there are many areas that still lack specifically those around reproductive health for our community residents. So you may be wondering, Kamal, you talked about infant mortality, you talked about housing. Now, what does repro health have to do with it? And I'm here to tell you it has everything to do with our infant health in our community. Reproductive health is one aspect of our life that shows up at every stage of our lifespan, right? From puberty to childbearing ages to afterwards. It follows us all across our lifespan, yet it's one of the least accessible services in healthcare. So reproductive health intersects directly with community health. For example, when we see that communities have less access to abortion, we see higher rates of maternal infant deaths and increased levels of poverty that is generational. When we see less access to doula services, we see higher rates of infant mortality, that's a given, And we also see higher rates of C-section, less access to gender-affirming care services. We see increased LGBTQIA marginalization, increased rates of suicide amongst the LGBTQIA population, and self-harm. Increased trauma and stress from lack of access to services leads to a cascade of health problems, um, like poor birth outcomes. So for example, I've included a scenario um, here for us to think about. After paying sky-high rent for your home and utilities, you have $100 left for the entire month. Will you buy groceries for your family with that $100, or will you pay for your reproductive health co-pays, which are also much needed services? With that $100, will you pay for critical home repairs, or will you use those $100 to fill your hormone prescriptions without which you can't maintain your hormone balance. Will you use the $100 to fund your much needed abortion knowing that you will have no funds left to take care of the kids that you already have? So these are examples of the impossible decisions that our community members are left making. We at the YWCA are working to change that. In 2019, we did a survey of Kalamazoo County residents and learned that one in three residents faced barriers to accessing key reproductive health services. Those barriers were mainly around finances and transportation. And it caused people to delay seeking care or to forego care entirely. Imagine that. COVID has especially exacerbated the need for coverage, knowing that folks have lost their jobs, insurance along with that, and that um, many of the services that people are seeking are not covered by insurance in the first place. The need for repro health goes beyond just what our survey told us. We also have a need for increasing repro health access because people shouldn't have to choose between repro health needs and basic needs. We shouldn't have to choose if we're going to feed our family buy groceries or if we're going to fulfill our much-needed medical copays. The LGBTQIA+ communities' needs are unmet which means that we are further marginalizing an already marginalized population in our community. To answer that, to answer that call, the YWCA has launched a comprehensive reproductive health fund. It's the first of its kind in the nation, something to truly be proud of for our community. This health fund aims to zero out the balance for repro health services for our Kalamazoo County residents. It is a partnership between the YWCA Kalamazoo and key repro health service providers to make sure that our resident services are paid for, not a loan, not something that you pay us back over time, paid for. Our priority population are those that are most marginalized in our community, that includes people of color, regardless of income level, because as you've seen that I shared earlier, it doesn't matter when you're a person of color, how much money you make, you are still at risk of infant loss. Our priority population also includes uninsured people, undocumented people, LGBTQIA community, and low income people. However, that being said, this is our priority population. We don't turn people away. Kalamazoo County resident is the main eligibility, and we are there to serve. The covered services that we have in our health fund thus far are doula services, which many people tend to think of as prenatal support or birth support, What's unique about this health fund is that our doula services cover 12 weeks postpartum, completely paid for. We also have a post-loss coverage of doula services. That is, after a miscarriage, after an abortion, your body has still suffered a loss, um, and doula services are much needed for that. We also offer emergency contraception services. Um, We have kits ready-made, no questions asked. Come in, get your kit in situations of um, when emergency contraception is needed. Emergency contraception kits cost about $50 or more. Most people cannot afford a sudden expense of that amount. We cover transportation costs. We also cover name and gender marker changes, name changes through the state, um, birth certificate, and via Secretary of State. Why? because having your identity match, your having your name and gender marker match your true identity is the biggest form of affirmation in one's life. We also cover abortions, that is the medication or the in clinic, covering the entire cost of it, knowing that it is not covered by insurance anywhere. We also cover hormone replacement therapy for our LGBTQIA um, community members who are transitioning to have access to their hormone, um, hormone therapy medications. We also cover HIV prevention through PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, and we are also soon launching our gender-affirming products. All of this is done via a centralized, streamlined uh, hotline that community members call and they get uh, connected to the services that they need and walk away with a zero balance. Since we've launched in September of last year, we have made quite an impact I um, have shared with you a 2021 uh, YWCA Repro Health Fund impact report that shows just how impactful our health fund has been in just the short few months that we've been in operation. But some of the things that I have highlighted here are that we have provided over $25,000 in direct client support from September through December alone. That's $25,000 that our community did not have to pay out of pocket. We have had um, over 70% of the health fund users identifying as people of color, and 52% of them identifying as black. 74% of our Repro health fund users had an annual income of less than $24,600. With an income like that, with a family to support, um, it's no wonder that people have to connect with the Repro health fund, uh, knowing that based off of recent studies, most community members across the nation can't afford a $400 emergency. Right? And over 95% of our health fund users had some type of insurance coverage, yet still could not afford key repro health services. That's because insurance doesn't cover it. Doula services, abortion services, right? Two of our most heavily used services. So clearly, the community needs this health fund and I'm just incredibly excited to have the opportunity to share that with you. There are more details available on your 2021 impact report, and I have included my information here um, for any questions that you may have for me now or later. I thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much, Ms. Rasby, for coming here today, for all the work that you're doing and for taking time to come and talk to us about it. Are there any questions from members of the commission at this time? Vice Mayor Cooney.
5: Can you make a comment? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming and um, for raising my consciousness and the consciousness of the community of, about this critical issue. And, and I, I just want to congratulate, one of the things that I think Cradle has done is a collective response. It has marshaled the resources that we have in this community and focused it on this issue with clear results Uh, we have so many resources here but we haven't been able to manage that collective response as you have done here so very well so thank you so much
4: thank you so much and i just asked us to think how much more we could do right how much more we could do if we continue to to move forward with that intention thank you
1: thank you vice mayor cooney any other commissioners yeah commissioner hess
0: uh kamal again thank you for being here appreciate the report and um You know, when Dr. Art James, I believe he began this in in the 90s, early 90s? Yes. And uh, it seems that we're just now beginning to make a dent in in the numbers. However, um, what policies can you see uh, from the city's perspective uh, that that we could look at, um, implement, or change uh,
4: that can make a difference um, in your work? absolutely that is the million dollar question i would say the thing about infant mortality as you've seen is the ability to shape policy all across the board has a direct impact on infant health if there are things that you can look at within um, city policy on things like hiring on our diversity equity and inclusion i was very excited to see it on the agenda after this Um, in terms of where's our money allocated what are, we, what are we supporting with our funds? They say if you want to find somebody's priority, look at where the money goes, right? So aligning our dollars with efforts that are directly benefiting community members, that's something. I know that there's a lot that goes into infrastructure and things of that sort. That's not where I would immediately think when we think of policy changes, right? Um, I also think about policy level uh, things about coverage. What type of coverage are we providing for our own city employees? City employees are community members. What are their benefits like? Are they working for the city and representing the city in the, the greatest light but going home and being un, unable to afford um, their day-to-day life? Right? Um, so those are things that immediately come to mind. Other things, there's accountability. Um, I can't state that enough. Many of us, um, it's easy for us to talk about what, what seems like a good thing for us to do, but how are we holding ourselves accountable? Are they each of us um, involved in uh, racial equity knowledge gain? Are we building our own muscle when it comes down to racial equity? You don't know what you don't know, and you have to get yourself that lens. There are lots and lots of resources for racial equity in our very own community, some of the community members that I actually see in this room right now. Are we utilizing those resources? are we taking the time to um, to learn and grow in those ways and then bringing it back shifting policy doesn't happen overnight but knowledge gain can um, so those are the areas that I originally think of that come to mind thank you
1: Fish Morris
6: <clears throat> is there a reason why uh, families of color are bunched in together and white families are separate like why are families of color bunched into one category
4: Ah Yes. So that's typically how, based off the information that we get from fetal infant mortality reviews, um, families of color, once you look at the data, are split further into other backgrounds like Asian and uh, Hispanic as an ethnicity. Um, Yet, the black infant mortality rate takes up so much of that percentage that it's predominantly black families. So we have it as families of color. Um, the majority of them are black families to the point where it's almost synonymous at this point, um, considering the rate of infant births compared to infant deaths. But we do have it broken down um, in more detail to ensure that that we don't get lost, right? So for example, as a woman who identifies as Asian, in families of color, my daughter would have been lost in those numbers, right? Mm-hmm. But we do have our electronic medical records that we've worked with our health systems to build to tease that data apart so that we can look at not just black babies and white babies, multiracial babies, Asian babies, Latinx babies. So we do have our data that we've just now gotten the health systems to tease apart that way. But rest assured, is being accounted for, absolutely.
6: Thank you. Um, how do you then take that and use that information to um, address different resources that different cultures need, right? Um, and how do you, like, spell that out in a, like a graph like this.
4: Oh yes, absolutely. So the, a lot of that rests on our fetal infant mortality review team. Um, we have actually going through something which is like a, a mapping process right now where the data backbone team that uh, that gathers our data for us are drilling it down to all of these actionable policies and procedures so that each of our um, strategic focus areas can move forward with it. So for example, if we are seeing that there are increased rates of um, infant deaths um, and they are non-English speaking, so then we know that we need to adjust our programming to account for having community health workers that are bilingual, Mm -hmm. we should have that anyway. We should have that anyway. Yes. Um, Just simply put. But what that does is it gives us the, I will say justification because the justification is there, but it gives the rationalization for organizations to then hire those community health workers to specifically go into those neighborhoods. One of the other things that we've been doing is called geomapping, looking directly at where the infant death cases are most concentrated, and then looking at those community, um, essentially like an environmental scan of that community. What's the language barriers? Are there any language barriers? What organizations are already present there? Um, how do we get fathers involved in um, in this equation? And do we? how do we speak their language? How do we make sure that our marketing materials are aimed at them? And then, more importantly, how do we collaborate with community organizations that are trusted by these different communities? For example, if someone from the YWCA wanted to go into my place of worship at the mosque, it's not very easy for them to do so, no, but if they collaborate with someone who looks like me or identifies um, that way, they have a foot in the door because the information is important to them and infant death is impacting them as well. All of that is driven by our fetal infant mortality review where every single case is noted by um, race, ethnicity, and then socioeconomic status as well so that we know lower income, higher income because our tactics will be um, adjusted accordingly. That then goes to the data team, who creates these graphics specifically for the population of interest. For example, you may see some Cradle, um, Kalamazoo marketing materials in Spanish, in French, in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Those come from the most pressing topics that were lifted from the fetal infant mortality review. We have a long way to go, though. I do agree. Yeah, no,
6: that's awesome. Um, what are some other determining factors that aren't like spelled out in this uh, presentation when it comes to infant mortality rate, right? like? fatherless homes, mm-hmm. um, how many kids are in the house, like are those also other determining factors that um, play a part in that?
4: Oh, absolutely. There are there are so many um, causes of infant loss. What I've shared on the um, slide that had the, the logic model on, on it was the overarching causes or ones that are like deep beneath the surface. But um, some of the things that we see on safe sleep-related deaths, right, simply put, um fetal demise due to an unsafe sleeping environment. We see lots of premature um, deaths, low birth weight babies. Those premature deaths and low birth weight babies more often than not tend to be f- to women of color. When I explain the things about like hypervigilance and the inability to carry to term, that's where that comes from. Imagine being born without all of the necessary um, bodily functions for life. So that's what we see. We also see congenital anomalies or congenital defects. Those have been on the rise lately. Um, There are lots of things like fertility treatments and multiple pregnancies, things of that sort. We just tend to see a lot more congenital anomalies. Um, Birth spacing. That's something that we've really been um, noting in our county. Inadequate birth spacing, less than 18 months um, from a previous pregnancy or a previous delivery and the next pregnancy. Um, That's why we tend to see that it's the second baby that we lose, not not always the first baby, um, inadequate uh, pregnancy spacing. We also see in terms of um, fatherhood involvement, we have seen that having a father involved, even if they are sharing custody and not in the same household, that that significantly increases a baby's chance of surviving the first year and beyond. Yet, a lot of our programming is focused on birthing parent and birthing parent alone. And I mean that across the county. Um, health systems, right? Is like many don't account for, um, for the partner being present, yet we know that they are the other half of the equation. So this is absolutely something that impacts infant mortality and just infant birth outcomes um, and life trajectory as a whole. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Appreciate it. Commissioner Hoffman.
4: Thank you,
7: Mayor. Kamal, thank you so much for being here. This was so important for us as a commission to hear and see this presentation. Um, when I think about the housing issue that we have, the slide that showed the toilet, the bathtub, uh, the hole in the wall, that is a property that is located here in the city of Kalamazoo. It is. Okay. And so th- the next part of that is that is a, a, a property that families are occupying right now in that condition. So what I want to say to us is how do we address that through inspections? How do we get streamlined and do something because people are suffering and, and it's unnecessary suffering? And so thank you for bringing this out. Thank you for being, giving us these visuals mm-hmm. because we have men, women and children living in places of squalor and paying rent. And so we can do something about that from this commission and with our city staff. I appreciate you so much. Thank
4: you for being here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Hoffman. Other questions or comments on this? Uh, Commissioner Pradle.
4: Hey, good evening,
2: Kamal. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for being here. Appreciate your presentation and, and uh, being here today. Uh, wondered if you could speak a little bit more about the infant mortality review, and you mentioned it's a national model, and I'm just really be curious to l- learn a little bit more about what makes that such an, a, an impressive model, um, locally, but also nationally.
4: Absolutely, so um, counties nationwide um, have fetal infant mortality reviews um, depending on the size of the county and the infant mortality death rates. So the fact that we have a fetal infant mortality review in and of itself is not unique. It is our, um, our framework for the fetal infant mortality review, the number of cases that we review, and the, how in-depth we are with our cases that make us a national model. So Kalamazoo County's fetal infant mortality review is a partnership between WMED, the med school, Um, and our county government. We then have um, multi-sector representation. That's what makes it incredibly unique. Many um, femurs across the nation have lots of clinical representation, providers, um, sometimes uh, nurses, pediatricians, or if they have clinical representation, it's clinical representation only for OBGYNs who may have been Um, present or involved in that pregnancy case. In our situation, we have multi-sector representation where clinicians are just some of the the representatives at the table. We also have um, CPS involved. What was it about this case that CPS needs to to know about? Um, We have social justice agencies represented. We have home visitation programs. We have philanthropy involved sectors that other um, femurs across the nation haven't seen involved in fetal infant mortality review. And that's because I started this presentation by telling you that infant mortality is a community problem. It's a community crisis. So how can our infant mortality review team not have multi-sector community representation? Another thing that makes our femur unique is our interview rate is at around 50%. So we're able to interview at least 50% of the families that have experienced um, fetal demise. There are, um, at t- depending on the appropriateness in the case, there are death scene reenactments when needed um, to ensure that we have detailed and proper um, information. Um, and the we also have a very in-depth review process. so. Case sharing is done in a very intentional manner. Uh, We don't just review the cases and talk about this went well, this didn't go well. What we do then is map it on to cradle strategy. We see, for example, um, some that most of our cases, prenatal access was something that was um, celebrated and went well. That's a good thing. Yet we also see things like cases of domestic violence, sexual assault, um, or mental health concerns. We flag those and build it into our strategy, whereas many fetal infant mortality reviews nationwide may pick some of those, um, but maybe not have such a strong structure to plug it into. We're very fortunate to have um, Cradle Kalamazoo and Fetal Infant Mortality Review working um, in tandem to be able to directly make those connections and hold ourselves accountable, quite frankly. I would say the accountability is the major piece.
2: One other question for you, I appreciate that sure. uh, answer. Uh, you you uh, identified a number of, of strategies as well, and, and one was reproductive health. But if you if you could, and I know this is not always easy to do when it's as complex of an issue as infant mortality, but in terms of if, if we were to really hone in resources and interdisciplinary coordination, is there a segment or um, I guess a, a, a strategy that you think would be the best use to to focus the most on right now if we could focus more on to that strategy you think you would see greater uh, impact on outcomes
4: around repro health specifically uh, or
2: any of the any of the strategies uh, yes
4: um, so strategy wise housing 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 um, it's one thing to have uh, access to health care or any of these other services and then go home to a place that can't be considered a, a, a safe place. Um, the insulin example is one that I will never forget that um, really strikes me. We can work on our clinical processes all day. We can work on our um, equitable prescription, which is another thing, right? Like the um, the fact that people of color tend to get less pain medication prescribed to them when needed. That's a whole other thing. But when it does get prescribed, what then? Where does it go? Housing is one um, of the biggest concerns that we see, the most calls that we receive. Um, for pregnant and parenting people who um, are accessing our universal access form, the one that I mentioned that is a one-stop shop. Housing is at the top of the list always. Um, Other things that that, uh, come to mind are services that are not covered by insurance. Um, So things like abortion services, things like doula services, regardless of how we feel about it personally, um, research shows, science shows that it impacts health outcomes. So that is something that we need to be investing in for community members. LGBTQIA community members. It seems to to folks that no one seems to know what they need, but who's talking to them? Um, So these are also needs that that come up in our community because many people say Kalamazoo City, extremely progressive, what are we doing? Um, What are we doing to show that? So those are areas that come to mind, LGBTQIA plus needs repro health needs specifically around doula services abortion services and top it off with housing. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Th- thanks. Once again, very much. I appreciate uh, your time and and uh, your intensity of presentation about how important this work is. So thank you. We also do have an, another very important uh, presentation this evening. And I want to make sure we have time for that. So. Uh, I would like to move right on deputy city manager Chamberlain
3: yes thank you very much sir uh,
2: tonight we'd like to talk about the efforts that are ongoing with our de- uh, diversity equity and inclusion program and to start us off with that we'd like to introduce Dorla Bonner uh, director of uh, diversity equity and inclusion here for the city of Kalamazoo
8: good evening everyone good, to good evening be here Dora. oh that's backwards Scott I don't know how you got it like that. The other, do the other one first. So, good to be here. Um, first, I want to introduce my, our team, because I don't want everybody to think it's just myself. Uh, Tanessa Patterson, who is the DEI coordinator, and um, Assistant Chief Vic Green, who is doing this work for in public safety. So, I wanted to get that out the way, because we don't, this is too much for us three. That's why I'm here to talk to y'all this is a us sustained. So I want to give a little background on where we are before I introduce our, our consultant that came here from Lansing. Um, in 2020 this office was started with a great plan to do an assessment and the world happened. I call it the world kind of imploding on us and then in 21 we were able to start the process. So I need people to know that this is not a result of anything that happened in 2020. It's not a result of the pandemic. It's not a result of the murder of George Floyd or our investigation for public safety and how we responded to the, to the protest. This was planned because it is hard to transform something when you don't know where you are. And if you know me, I'm going to say over and over again, we're about transformation, not transactions. So that's how we started. Something else I want to clear up is that um, we are the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. We are excluding no one or nobody, no issue, no marginalized population. But what we've learned based on our survey is that race, she talked about what's happening in the community. We're going to talk about the issues that's happening in this house, okay? Race is upfront about what's happening. And also, the city manager proclaimed that we are going to work diligently, become anti an anti-racist organization. So we have to deal with race. I work with a lot of people across the country in this field. And it's the saying is, if you don't get the race part right, you're not going to get no diversity. You're not going to have equity, inclusion, nor belonging. So that's why race is on the top, but it is not exclusive of anything else. So for you all getting those emails, that's the answer, OK? Because I hadn't said it to y'all yet, but that's the answer. It's not race exclusive, but we got to deal with it. So when we did this assessment, we learned a lot of things, and fortunately, I don't have to present that. That's why we have our consultant here. So I'm going to introduce Brian Rowe from the Michigan Public Health Institute, who came all the way to Lansing just for me. No, just for us. Come on, Ryan.
3: THANK YOU, DIRECTOR BONNER, uh, COMMISSIONERS. IT'S AN HONOR TO BE HERE. Uh, MET SOME OF YOU WHEN WE PRESENTED OUR KEY FINDINGS uh, BACK IN OCTOBER. I KNOW THERE ARE NEWER MEMBERS. Uh, GOOD TO SEE FAMILIAR FACES. AND uh, I AM THE PROJECT LEAD FOR THE CITY OF Kalamazoo DIVERSITY, EQUITY, AND INCLUSION ASSESSMENT. I'M THE OUTREACH AND ENGAGEMENT DIRECTOR FOR THE MICHIGAN PUBLIC HEALTH INSTITUTE. I'M ALSO THE PROJECT DIRECTOR FOR THE SECOND PHASE WHERE WE ARE DOING ONLINE AND IN-PERSON BASICALLY INPUT SESSIONS uh, WITH STAFF TO MAKE SURE THAT STAFF VOICES ARE CENTERED IN THE CREATION OF THE DEI PLAN THAT COMES OUT OF THIS REPORT. SO IT'S BEEN A JOY TO BE WORKING WITH YOU OVER THIS TIME. Um, I'M GOING TO JUST PRESENT SOME OF THE KEY FACTORS AND HIGHLIGHTS. Uh, I TRUST THAT YOU HAVE ALL uh, HAD ACCESS TO THE FULL REPORT um, THAT'S ON YOUR DEI WEBSITE. Um, and happy to, as, as always, um, be available for uh, deeper questions, but want to make sure that we um, take advantage of this opportunity to be in a room together. Uh, it's, it's a gift that we've all been looking forward to, to have this conversation again and be available. So I'll try and save as much time as I can for questions so we can have some dialogue about the findings. Um, and I assume this is my little clicker here. Awesome. Thank you. So. Um, As uh, Director Bonner uh, alluded to, we were charged um, based on conversations with city leaders um, and a vision that was set forth in the creation of your DEI program uh, to become an anti-racist, anti-oppressive city government where diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging are internalized in your systems and culture. Pretty ambitious, forward thinking statement visually uh, we wanted to just put that up here and as we uh, were charged, we were charged with doing a uh, a, a broad assessment uh, that included several different methodologies to make sure that you had a data-informed, human-centered um, sense of a, a, a swath of where you might go deeper once you have uh, some indicators about where some barriers or opportunities are. IN ENACTING THIS VISION. SO OUR PROCESS, um, AND I ASSUME YOU ALL HAVE THIS IN FRONT OF YOU, I KNOW IT MAY BE HARD TO READ FOR OUR AUDIENCE MEMBERS, Um, STARTED IN FEBRUARY OF 2021. WE HAD OUR KICKOFF. Um, WE BASICALLY HAD THREE DIFFERENT AVENUES FOR OUR uh, uh, ASSESSMENT. Uh, WE DID uh, A PRELIMINARY SURVEY OF ALL STAFF. WE ALSO INVITED uh, Commission members and board members to take part in that Um, we did a document review of a a wide swath of different policies and procedures across the organization and we also did listening sessions in sort of focus group style to make sure that we could go deeper into the qualitative data voices and experiences of people uh, affected um, by inequity or with experiences around how that shows up in the organization so THAT ALL SPANNED uh, THROUGH uh, 2021, THROUGH uh, THE uh, OCTOBER of, 20, OF THAT YEAR WHERE WE uh, prevent, PRESENTED THIS uh, FINAL PRESENTATION. I WANT TO START WITH LEVEL SETTING BECAUSE IT'S ALSO A THEME OF OUR REPORT AND MAKE SURE THAT uh, WE HAVE SOME UNDERSTANDING ABOUT THE TERMS THAT WE'RE GOING TO BE USING HERE. Um, DIVERSITY IS A REPRESENTATION OF DIFFERENT DEMOGRAPHIC GROUPS WITHIN A RANGE OF DIFFERENCES THAT MAKE PEOPLE UNIQUE. Equity is the guarantee of fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement for all while striving to identify and eliminate barriers that have prevented the full participation of some groups. And inclusion is the action of creating an environment that engages, respects, and values multiple perspectives, ideas, and individuals. It is one theory, and it's ours, that when you have all three of those you have a much higher rate of what's called belonging. Belonging is the feeling of security and support when there is a sense of acceptance, inclusion, and identity for an individual within a group. Uh, A a large swath of research shows that when you talk about organizational health and community health, sense of belonging is one of the key indicators for almost every area of of success, financial, uh, morale, retention, Etc. When we use the terms anti racism and anti oppression, we're pointing to um, two related concepts. Anti oppression is the active process of identifying and eliminating all forms of oppression. Oppression takes form of racism, sexism, classism, ableism, heterosexism, um, transmisogyny, etc. Um, <clears throat> and by changing these systems, organizational structures, policies, and practices, and attitudes so that power is redistributed and shared equitably. Um, As Director Bonner alluded to, MPHI also uh, leads with race, as we said, and and the theory there is that white supremacy culture is the blueprint for all other forms of oppression. So we are intersectional by nature and understand that every form of oppression um, is related to and affected by cannot be taken in isolation so when we talk about intersectionality uh, there's uh, the concept that you can't divide two parts of your identity if you are a black woman uh, you can't be black on one day and a woman on the other day but the also the other part of that concept is that uh, you can't just show up for lgbtq justice and not show up for racial justice you can't uh, separate out as our colleagues that came before us um, the social determinants of health in one area are interrelated in others. So when we talk about this in our field, we talk about the root causes of oppression. Um, They are all of these different forms, but anti-racism is a particular, and anti-blackness are different forms that we focus in on and name in this report because they surface in many areas. So I want to take some time to make sure that we all have the same language and then produce this uh, just example of the theory I was alluding to. Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, is often referred to in a group because of their interrelatedness. For a long time, we had sort of diversity trainings that everyone was mandated to go to and didn't want to go to in, in many cases, and the focus was on just making sure that we had different identities in the room. WE'VE EVOLVED FROM THOSE uh, CONCEPTS IN in MANY WAYS TO MAKE SURE THAT PEOPLE UNDERSTAND THAT IF YOU HAVE DIVERSITY BUT WHEN YOU GET THERE, THE PEOPLE WHO ARE DIVERSE ARE NOT INCLUDED IN THE POWER SHARING AND VOICE OF THE ROOM, YOU DON'T HAVE INCLUSION, um, THEN YOU HAVEN'T REALLY ACCOMPLISHED THE GOAL OF DIVERSITY. AND THEN ONCE YOU HAVE INCLUSION AND DIVERSITY BUT YOU AREN'T WORKING TO uh, BREAK DOWN THE BARRIERS TO ACCESS THAT IS REPRESENTED IN EQUITY, you, YOU ALSO NEED ALL THREE OF THOSE PRESENT. <clears throat> I WILL SAY THAT WHILE THAT'S REALLY IMPORTANT, THAT WE KNOW THAT WE CAN'T JUST DO DIVERSITY AND WE HAVE TO HAVE INCLUSION AND EQUITY, SOMETIMES WE GO THE OTHER WAY. AND WE THINK THAT WE HAVE THESE NEW WORDS THAT EVERYONE'S TALKING ABOUT, AND WE NEED TO FOCUS ON INCLUSION AND EQUITY. and WE ABSOLUTELY DO. BUT WE LOSE SIGHT OF THE FACT THAT YOU HAVE TO HAVE DIVERSITY. AND IF YOU HAVE INCLUSION AND EQUITY, BUT YOU HAVE AN ex- YOU HAVE A SITUATION WHERE YOU DON'T HAVE DIVERSE REPRESENTATION, IT WILL ALSO UNDERMINE THOSE OTHER TWO COMPONENTS. SO I WANTED TO MAKE SURE WE TOOK SOME TIME TO TALK ABOUT THE RELATIONSHIP BETWEEN THESE THREE CONCEPTS BECAUSE THAT ALSO SHOWS UP IN OUR FINDINGS. AGAIN, WHEN YOU HAVE ALL THREE, YOU HAVE THIS, uh, this SENSE OF BELONGING. THE KEY uh, SUMMARY OF OUR FINDINGS IS, is FOUND ON THIS SLIDE and, AND IN YOUR REPORT, AND I'M GOING TO KIND OF basically plain language, these five key areas that we found from our, uh, from our report. So number one <clears throat> is a lack of standardized protocols and coordination of DEI efforts into one strategy. Basically, uh, if you have, if, we, if it was found that a certain department or manager was doing things and to focus on equity or inclusion, it was happening, but not in coordination as one overall strategy. Of course, that's part of the intent of this report and, and your program is to start to formulate one overall strategy. The second theme that we found from our report is a lack of internally demonstrated commitment to DEI that can lead to skepticism and disengagement of staff um, around the DEI effort, so plain language If you don't believe people are sincere in the effort and are doing this just for show, then you're probably not going to come to the focus groups or participate in the survey or be engaged in the effort and that's going to really undermine your abilities to do this work. Number three, a higher rates of microaggressions and unfair treatment toward black and women employees were seen as dismissed or unaddressed by supervisors and commonly unreported. Again, the the plain language here, is that if you have, when we talk about microaggressions, we should pause there and make sure everyone understands that term. There's nothing micro about microaggressions, as they say. Um, these are the thousand paper cuts that happen over time when you are reminded daily that you are an outsider to the, the belonging of the culture of your organization or community, and when they happen, they absolutely, um, again, I'll keep shouting out our colleagues at Cradle, THE SAME INSTANCES HAPPEN WHEN YOU DON'T HAVE KEY HEALTH INDICATORS, uh, BELONGING, uh, AN EXISTENCE OF DEI um, HAS EVERYTHING TO DO WITH um, THE PREDICTORS OF HEALTH FOR YOUR STAFF AND HEALTH FOR YOUR ORGANIZATION. SO WHEN THOSE MICROAGGRESSIONS OCCURRED, um, THIS HAPPENED ACROSS ALL IDENTITIES, BUT WE HAD A PREPONDERANCE OF uh, DATA AROUND BLACK EMPLOYEES AND WOMEN EMPLOYEES THAT SAID WHEN THEY, reported these things, they were unaddressed and they that often led to them not reporting them in the future because of a fear that nothing would happen. All right. Number four is that uh, racial and ethnic isolation, i.e. a lack of diversity, um, an overrepresentation of men uh, uh, and disparities in job type longevity and salary uh, contributed to a lack of psychological safety for BIPOC and women employees. Again, where we find a lack of psychological safety for one group, you often find it for um, all other marginalized identities, but um, the BIPOC and women data was, uh, rose to the top there. And again, it's that relationship between if I feel like I'm the only voice in this room or there aren't other people like me, I may not feel safe enough to talk about how my experience has been around inequity. So psychological safety is kind of the other, a lack of psychological safety, if you will, is the other side of the coin of belonging. Belonging, you feel included and and you have shared power. A lack of psychological safety is the indicator of unhealth that happens when you don't feel safe enough to be your authentic self in the workplace. And then lastly, sort of an extension of number four, we specifically found this around gender disparities AND THAT THE the EXPERIENCE AND um, DISPARITIES IN JOB CLASSIFICATION, SALARY, AND NORMALIZED SEXIST MICROAGGRESSIONS CONTRIBUTED TO A WORK CULTURE um, THAT WOMEN PERCEIVED AS CENTERING AROUND THE EXPERIENCE AND BACKGROUND OF MEN. SO THOSE ARE THE KEY um, FINDINGS OF OUR REPORT. AND I WANTED TO ADD THIS SLIDE THAT'S A LITTLE DIFFERENT FROM THE FIRST TIME WE CAME SO THAT WE CAN Uh, CENTER IN ON QUESTIONS. Um, AS I SAID, I THINK THESE FINDINGS HAVE CERTAINLY bared OUT AS WE'VE CONTINUED IN OUR PROCESS TO PROVIDE SAFE SPACE AND AFFINITY GROUPS FOR STAFF TO RESPOND TO THIS REPORT, Um, BUT ANOTHER WAY OF PUTTING THIS IS THAT YOU HAVE TWO PRIMARY NEEDS. ONE IS THAT LEVEL SETTING, SO A MISUNDERSTANDING OF THE BASIC CONCEPTS OF DIVERSITY, EQUITY, AND INCLUSION, AND A LACK OF SAFE SPACE FOR PEOPLE TO FEEL, Like they can be their authentic self or share their opinions on this DEI effort, even are sort of your primary needs. And your primary obstacles are this extreme lack of diversity, a lack of psychological safety, and skepticism um, that leads to a lack of engagement. So I'll just drill down into a couple of examples. Again, um, I'm not going to read all of this, but it is available on your DEI website if you want to read some of these quotes. BUT WHEN WE TALK ABOUT LEVEL SETTING, AND IF YOU SEE A QUOTE IN OUR REPORT, IT IS NOT BECAUSE ONE, TWO OR THREE PEOPLE SAID IT, IT'S BECAUSE IT REPRESENTS um, AN OVERARCHING TREND, AND ONE OVERARCHING TREND IS THAT PEOPLE FELT THREATENED BY THE CONCEPT OF DIVERSITY, EQUITY AND INCLUSION BECAUSE THEY FUNDAMENTALLY DIDN'T UNDERSTAND WHAT THOSE TERMS MEANT. SO IN SOME CASES, PEOPLE ASSOCIATED A FOCUS ON Uh, DEI becoming so strong that we lose sight of quality, accountability and responsibility. That's the quote on on the right side of the slide. So of course the narrative is that when you have a focus on DEI, you lose quality, accountability and responsibility. And again, as we said around the data around belonging, that's um, the opposite of what um, science would tell us. So that's a baseline need that is a challenge to these efforts. The other is a one stat that you have on the left side of your slide, this slide here, around skepticism. 81% of survey respondents, so again, staff and um, board and commission members in the survey <clears throat> responded that they perceive that within the organization, there is no explicit commitment to equity. Now, we'll say that these numbers aren't as high for is there a commitment to diversity or is there a willingness BUT WHEN WE ASKED SPECIFICALLY, DO YOU SEE AN EXPLICIT COMMITMENT TO EQUITY, 81% OF YOUR RESPONDENTS SAID, NO, WE DO NOT SEE THAT. SO AGAIN, that's THAT'S A PRETTY BIG INDICATOR TO THE SORT OF SOIL THAT YOU'RE TRYING TO BUILD THIS PROGRAM OUT OF. ONE THING WE WANTED TO BREAK DOWN THAT ACTUALLY GOES ACROSS SEVERAL OF THESE THEMES BUT CERTAINLY RELATED TO PSYCHOLOGICAL SAFETY IT'S ALWAYS IMPORTANT TO BREAK DOWN THESE RESPONSES AND DISAGGREGATE THEM um, BY DIFFERENT FACTORS. AND CERTAINLY WE SAW A TREND THAT, FOR EXAMPLE, WITH OUR um, COMMITMENT STATEMENT, DO YOU SEE A HIGH COMMITMENT IN THESE DIFFERENT QUESTIONS FROM OUR SURVEY, WHEN WE BROKE THAT DOWN BY RACE, WHITE EMPLOYEES, STAFF AND BOARD AND COMMISSION MEMBERS HAD A MUCH HIGHER PERCEPTION, A SIGNIFICANT uh, PERCEPTION THAT IT WAS BETTER AND THAT THE COMMITMENT WAS HIGHER than your black or African-American employees. Again, these trends were across um, other communities of color, but we pulled this one out as an example. And then we broke it down by gender. It's still uh, also true that men in the organization saw the commitment uh, to DEI as being much higher than women saw that commitment. Um, We did have recommendations uh, in our overall report I'M GOING TO SAVE TIME BECAUSE I THINK THE EXPERIENCE OF DOING THIS uh, REPORT AND THE STAGE THAT WE'RE IN um, ARE GOING TO BE SOME THEMES THAT DIRECTOR BONNER will, WILL GET TO IN A MOMENT. BUT I WILL JUST LEAVE UP um, THIS SORT OF KEY OBSTACLES SLIDE AND um, PASS IT ALONG TO uh, DIRECTOR BONNER.
1: THANK YOU VERY MUCH MR. Rowe. APPRECIATE THAT.
3: Welcome. <laughs>
8: So, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you now, I may get emotional and this is why we're hurting. And so when you talk about intersectionality, just think of where I am. I'm, I'm a black female that is now a director, so I'm in an odd place. And so everything that you've seen is things that I've experienced in my 11 and a half years here, which is why I took this position because I know what it feels like and I know I wasn't the only one, but when I saw those numbers, my heart broke because it's not safe. And so what I want to talk about is the level setting and I'm going to hit that skepticism because when I started, you can change it for me. When I started um, and we did the, the um, I'm watching my time. Okay, when we did the assessment, we, I had some pushback from, from, from our BIPOC folk, especially the senior staff. They pushed back like we, and then I found out by a retired staff last at December, I think, this is the third or maybe fourth assessment that we've done and I didn't know that because I might handle things a little differently but if you've been here 25 years and four times somebody has asked you how do you feel here as a minority minoritized and you get and I gotta ask you again? So that now I understand so that's where the skepticism comes from but it comes from both sides so the theory of change we are using, how you gonna do this it's gotta be strategic so the GEAR Gover- Government Alliance for Race and Equity, also known as GEAR, has a theory of change that we're adopting. This is a practice-studied research process that is being used around the nation. So DOLA didn't invent it because DOLA is really smart, but not all that smart when it comes to some of this stuff. But I am smart. I ain't, don't think I'm minimizing who I am. I am what I am. Okay, okay. So anyway. Did okay. Okay. I lay? I'm sorry. Y'all know me. How do we level set? So first of all, normalize. Making sure we all understand it. Organize. Creating a structure. Operationalize. Developing and pushing it. We are not ready to organize or operationalize. And I wish the city manager is here. We've been talking about this. So I'm not, you know. We have to normalize this to get everybody on the same page. And so we knew the staff wasn't all on the same page. But let me just share two extremes from the leadership. I had one leader tell me, and this is from a director, so you don't, don't try to guess, just, tell, just work with me. It's anonymous. One leader said that we're hurting, is painful. You got a couple of leaders. And then another leader said to me, I wonder if the people of color are telling the truth to me. My response was, well, I'm pretty sure they are, because that's my experience too. But the fact that we're on those two sides of the spectrum means that we got to work to get it leveled so we can move. You know, I I guess part of my being a minister, we always have sayings. My other saying, other than transactions versus transformation is we all got to go the same way together as much as possible. So that's the first thing. Okay. I'm going to try to do this right because y'all know I've got to. What's next? Normalizing. So we got to slow up a little bit. One of the one of the great quotes I heard at a conference is one of my colleagues said, doing this work is like going up a mountain only to find out that something went wrong. You got to go back down and come up another way. So we've been trying to go up the mountain, figured out we're not ready to go too far. We got to come down and go another way. So the city manager and I are working with a consultant that can help us normalize. Because we, and the leadership has to normalize because Tenessa and I can't get to all of the departments to help normalize it. So we have to normalize all of it with all of the leaders so they can disperse. Um, and then we're gonna to continue to provide staff with learning opportunities. Like we, I got an email today that we have six staff going to erase training this month. That's how we normalize it. We educate. Okay, I'm almost done. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, what I do? Uh-oh, Scott. Which way did you do it? Okay, Oh, that's small, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna stop here. How can you support? I got a whole list of things y'all can do. Because not only do we go here together, go together, you are our leaders. You really need to go first. Because the only way you can hold us accountable, the only way you can hold Jim, the deputies, on down accountable, is that you know what it is and you've already been there. You can't shepherd something from behind. So I need you all to embrace it like it's you. Embrace it like it's your daughter at work trying to get, get, a, get a raise and get a promotion and, and hit, getting hit with something. You know, I, I'm telling that microaggression thing, there is no, there is no. I had it happen so bad once that when I got home I felt physical pain in my body because it was so bad. So if you can't, and this, I'm going to go the last one. Here we go. My closing, as I close the first time, Dr. Scott, <laughs> that's a church thing, pastors, close. you know they end their sermon three times before they end it. Uh, this, this is this is I heard this last week. Until you can see the fences and share the pain, you cannot be an anti-racism. Just right. let that go. Second one, you cannot reap the fruit of righteousness and justice when the soil is not prepared to nurture the seeds of truth. Righteousness and justice can only flourish when truth is received and responded to. This report is our truth. This is our truth. And shame on us if we do another survey and this is still our truth. So that is the end of my presentation. If you have questions, Ryan and I can answer them. Thank you. Thank you, for real, that's the end. That's where we're going to end. That's where, you know, we had a limited amount of time, so there's much more, but we're trying to make sure that we don't keep you here, and all you can get us a potty break before the next meeting. So, come on, Ryan, come back up. Thank you, all. right.
1: First of all, thank you very much, Director Bonner. Uh, multiple trainings have helped you with this, and uh, I would say... Uh, your spiritual journey is uh, so interwoven and I think it is critically important to this work so I appreciate you bringing that enthusiasm and deep deep commitment so thank you very much and uh, I don't really like the idea of running up against uh, you know a time frame here but it is what it is that's what we have tonight and I am also you know recognizing for all of us again that, that this isn't just, okay, we had our meeting on this and, and, and then we'll talk again in six months. So this is just uh, the beginning of deeper, more uh, engaged work that we're gonna be doing. That said, we do have an opportunity here, I'd say a half an hour or a little less, but about half an hour for questions. So let's go ahead and get started with that sir Commissioner who's like to yeah Commissioner Decker
9: thank you thank you Dola, for that presentation and also Ryan um, I did receive the report and I did read through it that day that you emailed it to me and it was quite I'll say shocking to read some of the comments that some of the the staff had had put in there um, and you're right you shouldn't have to have Surveys to get something done. Um, and I do believe what you said, and we had that conversation. I think it was you, your staff, and Commissioner Hess, um, about it has to start from the top, and it has to start from the top, and then it has to trickle down. And we have to hold ourselves accountable for the future and the forward movement of the city and DEI and being equitable for everyone. Um, so I look at some of the things that you have on here, and we talked about this before, about you know how we're able to support. You know, like you said, I think. Um, let's see if I. Uh, again, people don't believe that the city is trying to change, while well, we are trying to change. And you bringing this information and doing the surveys and putting this information together for us really puts it in front of our face. Something has to be done. Um, So I know that I'm going to be looking forward to seeing how we can Use our funds to Give some great training and again to find out how we can support you here as a commission. So thank you for that
1: Thank you you, Commissioner Decker Commissioner Hoffman.
9: Thank you guys
7: again for this presentation and I'm not shocked we live it everyday people of color black women live it every day. I made major decisions in this year to take care of myself and to remove toxicity out of my own life. And so when I hear this here, uh, we, don't, we don't need another, we don't need for real another, uh, Ryan, I'm sorry, I'm trying to take money out your pocket, but I'm just saying we already know what it is. Um, and we need to tell the truth. When harm is done, we have a responsibility and an obligation to, to cure and help that. And so that's from us as a commission, from staff, from leadership. Harm is being done. And I keep using the word suffering. You know, people come to work now because they have to. They have children, they have bills. Most of us spend the most time, more time here in our jobs than we do with family on some given weeks. So to come here and have to live in this environment, it is unjust, it's unfair, and I'm with you. We're gonna do something about it, and, and we, can, we can change this. this. This is real. And for this to be the fourth time, and we continue to change commissions, and we're doing this again? Y'all know I have a propensity to curse when, when I get excited or passionate. I'ma try not to do that here. Um, but, but this is some ish, for real. And so, you know, thank you for this, but I'm also sad that it came to this and glad that it came out publicly. And I, I wanna say to all of you here in the chambers, I think this is the biggest uh, audience we've had since we've come back in, in person. So thank you all for being here and, to hearing the, and for hearing these both very important topics that we, we presented today. So let's get to work. We got work to do. Let's get it. No more excuses.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Hoffman. Other questions or comments? Commissioner Hess.
0: Um, just briefly again, thank you, Director Bonner and, uh, and Ryan for, for being here and for doing the work. Yes, yes, we have work to do. Thank you. And instead of the American Rescue Plan with dollars, what we need in a, is the American Rescue Plan of the Spirit. And you're bringing that to the work as well, Dorla. And I appreciate you and what you've done so far. I remember sitting in that room when you were announced as our DEI director and just being overjoyed, I didn't realize, I didn't realize how difficult this work would be for you. I appreciate you doing it. We need a change of the soul. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Hess. Other Commissioner questions or comments?
6: Yeah. This is hard. I appreciate you guys work. Um, it means a lot. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, we're in, in this day and age and we still deal with some of the crap that's there because we as human beings haven't learned how to take responsibility for our wrongdoings. Um, and forgiveness goes a long ways. I've learned that it does reconciliation goes a long ways and that's what we need Uh, part of one of the reasons i ran for this position is to have proper representation for my culture at this table and one day when i become the mayor i'll be the first hispanic mayor in this city but that's the reality we live in I've told people, I'm I'm tired of fighting for a spot at the table when I belong at the damn table. I belong here. My people belong here. And we don't have to fight anymore. We shouldn't have to fight for a spot at the table. It makes no sense. We all have the greatest thing in common, and it's our humanity. And there is no one in this place greater than another. And we have to see that. We have to see that for what it is. And it sucks. It, it's, it's horrendous that we're at this place for the fourth time. And it, and it's, and it goes to show the growth we have to endure. We have, to, we have to continue to press and continue to have those challenging conversations. And just looking at you two individuals and thinking about the dynamics that you guys, um, it's, it's amazing to see the work you guys have accomplished. And I pray and I hope, like this is my hope, is that as human beings, we can see the importance of, of this work right we can see the importance of looking at each others as equals um and it's super important that it's vice versa it's a two-way street and i i i really appreciate the hard conversations you guys had to have the with people expressing what they express having to hold that stuff in for the fear of losing their job or being, you know, punished. I I I can't I can't think and conceive the thought of being punished because of who I am. That's bullshit. And people I I I got to receive people as they are. And people have to receive me as I am. And love goes a long ways. It does. And I think the work that you guys are doing, I pray that that's a catalyst for what's to come. And you're right, we we do. We do need the trainings. We do need to be the front runners and the trailblazers of this work. If we're going to expect our community to change and we don't do it ourselves, then what good is that? So I thank you for your advice and your challenge. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Mores. Other questions or comments this time? Commissioner Pradel.
2: Thank you, brother, for the <laughs> comments. Appreciate you. Um, just gonna mention, I, echoing what everybody else said as well, I can't begin to convey how much I appreciate you and uh, the work you're doing, uh, Director Bonner. Uh, something that you said very early on was about Uh, transformation and not transactions and the fact that we've done this four times over speaks to the fact it's been transactional right Um, let's make some transformation and uh, I can't remember who gave me this advice when I I was either running or when I first started on commission but they said I was asking you know why is it that like when when an issue of the time comes up Uh, People will come to City Hall here, but they don't go to Kalamazoo Township Hall or they don't go to the county building or they don't go to Ashton Township. You know, you're talking about the the hot, lightning rod issues of the day. Why do they come here? And, you know, the the person at the time gave me the advice and said, you know, because City Hall is the the cultural, the arts, the governing kind of epicenter of our community, even for people who don't live in this community. I mean, when you have hot button issues come up Uh, people who don't even live in the Kalamazoo or even work here come here to share how they feel about something. To me, that shows all the more reason why, to your point, that we need to be at the front of this and lead in this work. Because as Kamal described with Cradle and the work of infant mortality, we we know the impacts are related to systemic racism. And the best way we're going to change the outcomes in this greater community beyond these city hall walls is by starting right here within them. So, uh, I'm on board, uh, full throttle and ready to go and work with this great group of people to get this work done. So let's do it.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Prado. Vice Mayor Cooney.
5: Thank you, mayor. Um, every one of us sitting up here came up here because we want to work for justice. We want this community to be a model, a national model. And I think justice has different levels. One level is just policies, and we got a long way to go on that. But there's another level, and that is the individual level. And the first step in that is to recognize the dignity of each person and respect each person. And when people are don't feel that they're respected there's no justice there and when people feel that they're not heard or they're not important that's as unjust as the social policies that we see out there so we're socialized into a system which tells us that white people are superior from the time you're born Nobody says that to you in books. It's just the reality that you see. Who's giving the news? Who are in the important places? Who are the wealthy people? So we got a long way to go to undo the lies that we have been socialized into. And I think your report makes clear to us that right here in our organization We got a lot of undoing to do. So thank you for the report and we're committed to do the work.
1: Thanks, Vice Mayor Cooney. I actually have some questions where I'd like you to take advantage of the time that's left here for speaking. And so I don't have, you know, any long comments. Just I want to ask one brief question. How can people access this report? you know, if they're interested at this moment to look at it. Uh,
3: yeah, So either one of us can answer this, but on your, your <laughs> D de- I know I'll share it. Uh, yeah. On your DEI website for the city of Kalamazoo, this report has been there since October when it came out. Um, so if you Google DEI and city of Kalamazoo,
8: that'll be the first thing you see there. Sorry. Okay. And we will add these presentations. I'm sorry, thank you. We will add this presentation as well so people can have it all so they can see exactly what I'm asking you all to do so they can help hold you all accountable too.
1: Appreciate that, Director Bonner. So, my second question is this You have a few more minutes here. You've, you've done your best to just start with an overview here. So, if you had a little more time, which you do, <laughs> and doing this report are there things in particular that you would like to to talk about or focus on or you think would be helpful for this community conversation at this moment
3: uh thank you i i just uh i think you can feel the energy in this room i am I, not sure if it's a coincidence but i could think of no a better uh presentation to come before us and i really appreciate cradle pointing out that um THE WISDOM OF YOUR DEI DIRECTOR IS THAT YOU CAN'T SEPARATE OUT THE EXTERNAL AND THE INTERNAL WORK. AND IF YOU WANT TO REDUCE INFANT MORTALITY AND LOOK AT THE ROOT CAUSES OF uh, SYSTEMIC RACISM uh, AND CLASSISM AND SEXISM ON THE OVERALL HEALTH OF YOUR COMMUNITY, MAKING SURE THAT YOU ARE GROUNDED AND THAT THAT REALITY EXISTS WITHIN YOUR ORGANIZATION, THAT PEOPLE FEEL EQUIPPED AND SAFE TO HAVE THAT CONVERSATION IS ground zero of your work and so whatever you have to do to convict yourself in whatever form of privilege or power or position you have to do your own work as a part of your service to this community and help people make that connection because so often these are numbers these are facts and figures and they're not brought to form to the real lives that are harmed and dying because we've baked in oppression into our thinking, our culture, our relationships, our systems um, at, at all levels of oppression. And so I think I would just uh, reiterate the, the healthy conversation that needs to happen in this normalizing phase is about people starting in a spirit of confession to say, here is what my work looks like um, to, to move towards AS PEOPLE WITH PRIVILEGE, I SHOULD SAY, SO Mm -hmm. WHITE FOLKS, MEN, uh, PEOPLE WHO HAVE privileged IDENTITIES, AND AS WE TALKED ABOUT INTERSECTIONALITY, MANY OF US HAVE AT LEAST ONE, TO to START FROM THAT PLACE, um, TO to HELP PEOPLE MAKE THE CONNECTION BETWEEN THIS INTERNAL WORK um, AND THE EXTERNAL um, JOB THAT YOU'VE ALL SIGNED UP FOR to, TO REDUCE THESE HARMS IN YOUR COMMUNITY. I DON'T THINK PEOPLE MAKE THAT CONNECTION ENOUGH. AND THEN I'LL SAY, um, I'LL SAY THAT, YOU KNOW, IN OUR EXPERIENCE OF GOING OUT AND HAVING THESE CONVERSATIONS TO HELP pe- CENTER VOICES OF THOSE MOST IMPACTED BY INEQUITY IN THE CREATION OF THE PLAN, I THINK THAT'S SUPER IMPORTANT AND DEFINITELY BEST PRACTICE. AND WE we SAW A CONTINUATION OF PEOPLE WHO, um, didn't have that normalized basic level to, to not feel really uncomfortable having this conversation. Just basic like, hey, we just want to know what you think about this report. Made people very uncomfortable in some situations. And so as, as Dr. Bonner said, it's a two-sided street. It's do the people who are most harmed by inequity have safe spaces um, to, um, to talk about how they're harmed AND HOW um, AND WHAT THE WORK, what, their, WHAT THE NEEDS ARE AND THEN OUR FOLKS OF PRIVILEGE um, CREATING SPACES TO EDUCATE AND TRANSFORM OURSELVES SO THAT WE CAN CENTER THE PEOPLE MOST HARMED IN, in WHAT WE DO NEXT. Um, IT NEEDS TO BE PLAIN LANGUAGE, IT NEEDS TO BE DEMYSTIFIED, BUT IT NEEDS TO BE A PART OF um, HOW YOU THINK ABOUT. THE WORK, IT HAS TO BE RELATIONAL OR IT'S NOT GOING TO, it's not going to LAST. Um, THAT'S THE WAY OF THESE PREDECESSORS OF THESE REPORTS. MANY A FANCY REPORT HAVE LANDED IN THE CIRCULAR FILE BECAUSE THE TRUST AND RELATIONSHIP THAT LEADS TO TRANSFORMATION WASN'T PRESENT. SO CONNECTING THE ACTION AND THE RELATIONSHIP IN YOUR WORK I THINK WOULD BE CRITICAL IN WHATEVER YOU DO NEXT. THAT'S HELPFUL. I APPRECIATE IT.
8: And and I'm going to share something. I I wish, like I said, um, you all know me. What you see is what you get all the time. Y'all know I'm like this all the time. So I had these real hard conversations with our city manager. And I wanted to say this in front of him, but I know he's probably watching. We need you all to support him. So I asked him one day, I said, I think about this for you. What it has to be like to be a white man in a mostly white male organization fighting and for, for justice and becoming an anti-racist and when you read the report and see the ver- for the verbiage of our white men because it's broken out by race and know that some of them are really against this he has to go against his peers and that can't be easy so i when i i wanted to meant to say that because it's not just holding him accountable but it's also strengthening and supporting him so he can do what he says is in his heart to do. He needs somebody calling and checking on him. Are you OK? How bad are they beating you up? Because that's how this works. I mean, it, I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't the only person. It wasn't just black people getting killed in the civil rights era. White folk were killing white folk because they were supporting his work. You know, our lives are not threatened, but a whole bunch of other stuff is threatened when you try to do this work. And so that's my request to you all, support the leadership. Support not just me, us, but because I'm not in charge, you really have to support the person that's in charge. So that's one of my requests in his behalf. Strengthen him, hold his arms up, and remind him, you said that we were going to be anti-racism that we were going to be anti-racist. You said it, how do we help you hold on? So that, that's, okay.
1: Uh, ver- Thank you, also very, very helpful. I, I guess I'm gonna break my little rule I just made here and ask you one more question. So, uh, Mr. Rowe, are you, are you done now? Is your contract completed?
3: Uh, we actually have a, about another month to complete the focus groups, uh, uh, the input sessions with staff, and we'll, we'll wrap up phase two uh,
8: in the middle of, in a couple of weeks. So, we had committed to to staff to help let them help co-create this because if you don't, if you're not a part of the creation, you don't own it and you don't participate. And it's because it's about us. It, what's the phrase? Not, but, there we go. Nothing nothing about us without us, and that goes to any time you are trying to change something for a group. So what we contracted with MPHI to do is to do the second round. So what we're doing now is asking folks, did we hear you right? How do you, what's the most important things in the priority? How do we prioritize the recommendations? And lastly, what would change feel like? Because when we do the follow-up reports, it's the qualitative data that's going to make the most difference. When do we get to a point that people begin to feel belonging? Now, hard part is, a consultant tried to, didn't try to warn me, they did warn me, it can take up to five years for you to really feel the change. So our role right now is to set the foundation for transformation. Because we're all going to be gone, I mean, five years, trust me, I'm deuces, for real. For real. But how do we set, that's my challenge, is how do we set the foundation for transformation so when we are gone, how do we institutionalize this department and this work so when we're gone? Because now things are happening across the country. Different people are getting in leadership that created these positions and they're manipulating them, eliminating them. I have a colleague, they took diversity totally out of his job title and now he's just engagement. Because when people come in that don't believe it and have t- authority, they can change it. So, how do we institutionalize this? So, when we leave, all of us, you just can't just not hire somebody and let it disappear. That's what, that's, I forgot to put that on my list. Add that to your list. How to institutionalize the work beyond us, because it's not gonna happen in our time, because it's too ingrained. It is the history of this country to be racist. It is what it is. So, it's not going to happen with just us few.
1: Okay. So I I'm,
8: I'm, I'm you did this is, yeah.
1: So so this is like the sermon that that my, uh,
8: third, my third closing. Yeah.
1: You, you did. Well, I'm I'm ask you to 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 close it out one more time here and just say Help us if you're prepared for this, just to talk about okay, specifically you know timeline activities. Where do we go from here? What what should we look for next?
8: Okay, so after MPHI finishes their process, then we're going to work on our equity and inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion plan, which will happen. We wanted it to be done by the end of April, so we're still shooting for the end of April. Okay, when we talked about a reset and this is where that reset comes in and the reason we didn't talk about the the, um, recommendations is because we have to spend time normalizing the work before there is not the only recommendation that I feel comfortable working with is the first one, create a plan. Now, those other things, because of the response, we, I mean, we won't go into this response that he's getting just talking about what do you think. So if you're not able to work nicely with what you think, what's going to happen when I say, now I need you to do? Right. I ain't putting us on the firing line like that. I love y'all. It ain't that deep. Seriously, we have to protect ourselves. We have to protect each other. None of us are ready. People of color. Or white folk, we're in this really weird zone. And what I've learned from other organizations is before they even do the assessment, they do an organizational readiness assessment. Are you even ready? If I can recreate the world, I would do that first. And it would have told me, no, you're not. But we're pretty cool. We know how to get stuff done. We're going to just slow down a bit and spend some time NORMALIZING. AND WE'LL HAVE A PLAN READY TO GO WHEN IT'S A LITTLE MORE NORMAL. AND HOPEFULLY IT WON'T TAKE A LONG TIME. OKAY. THAT that HELP YOU?
1: IT DOES. AMEN. ANY. YEAH. COMMISSIONER HOFFMAN.
7: Thank you for that. I just, With that question, I just wanted to raise this point, when we talk about white privilege, part of that is wanting to know what we need to do right now, how is it going to be done, how long is it going to take, and, what, and how do we do it, right? So I just want to put that out there, when we're talking about this, this body of work is going to be messy, it's going to get raggedy, and yet it's, it's necessary. So in that messiness and that raggediness, that's where the tension comes, but that's also where the growth comes in. Okay. So to, to have this expectation that we need to have a plan, no, we need to just take a moment, breathe, and when, when you're getting confused or you're getting upset, one of the TRHTs, one of the, the tenants is, turn to wonder, go in, in deep within yourself. So we don't need to have a plan just yet. We know the work is gonna get messy, we know the work is gonna be raggedy, but in the end, there's going to be a level of beauty and people are going to be feeling like they can bring their, their whole selves to work. Uh, and that's what we're moving towards. And when we talk about the black people when we talk about women there, you know, that's real deep. And so I'll get into that at our next session. So and I want to also
8: say if we can try not to think about this as our other plans, this is not our traditional work. It's not like the master plan. It's not like a HUD plan. It is not linear because it's too many. It, 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 it's going to require a change of, I usually say heart, but I know that's a, that's a high one. It's going to change a, 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 of your desire and about your mindset. And those are not easy things to change. Like, like Commissioner Cooney, when you've been raised to think a certain way about yourself, and that's all of us because black people think a certain way about ourselves because of the environment we're in, and we need to let that go and white people, everybody comes with a certain piece. It's like baggage that you're carrying because you were given it at birth. And none of us realize until we really have good conversation how much that baggage is weighing us all down and preventing us from being the best person. I often think about the belonging thing, and you sit at a table and you're talking about something that affects the North side and people of color, And there's a person of color sitting at the table who's from the north side and they don't feel safe enough to tell you the truth so then we go ahead and do something from a more white perspective to people of color because we have totally missed the brilliance of that person that person that you hired because they were pretty smart and now they're stuck because if this is what we think if I say that What's gonna to happen to me? Are, are they gonna to listen to me? I'm gonna be disrespected. Are they gonna talk about me? Am I gonna get fired? Are they gonna think I'm. Bo- and, and all the time, you all are going on with your plan about a, a, a people that you don't understand. And there at that table is the history and the link to a better, could be the answer. So until we know how to let that person say, girl, what you know? And they lean back and say, let me tell you. Because that's how we talk. And it'd be okay. that I don't have to keep speaking all these different languages between depending on what room I'm in. When you get to that point, and that person can say, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. And this is why. And then they're listened to and respected. And it happens. And then they're celebrated for bringing truth i see y'all so okay
1: thank thanks again very much well i'd like just let it yeah thank you i was just going to let those words resonate here just for a moment generally speaking on our committee the whole agenda here the next thing is for commissioner comments, which we will have an opportunity once again in our business meeting. So I'm just gonna assume for the good of the order, let's just let those words ring a little bit. And that's the way we'll close this out, if that's okay with everybody.
6: Good we have
1: our business meeting here starting in a few moments. Give us a chance to get a short break before we get started with that. Uh, I love you, Kalamazoo. We are adjourned.